Chapter Nine of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Nine, Love is one and the same in the original, but there are a thousand copies of it, and it may be all differing from one another. La Rochefoucauld. Ben Kelham, disguised as Ramses the Great, laid a hand upon the girl's shoulder. As passing to the left of the tent, she walked slowly towards the door leading to the grounds whilst sounds of wrath came from the serried ranks of those who wished to pry into the future. The fortune-teller had sent word that there would be no more reading of horoscopes or hands that evening, and had absented himself therewith through a back entrance. "'You have been a long time,' said Ben Kelham. He looked magnificent as the great Sestorus, who had stood well over six feet in the days of ancient Egypt. What was the man telling you? Damaris was disturbed, and it was most unfortunate that— under the spur of inquietude, he should have chosen just this occasion and this moment to allow a hint of authority to creep into his voice, and a shadow of proprietorship to show in his actions. "'How do you know who I am?' parried the girl, coldly, as she shrugged the proprietory hand off her shoulder. "'Wellington gave you away. He followed your trail to the tent, and sat growling at everybody until I came along and removed him.' "'I wish you would leave the dog alone,' said Damaris, with a certain amount of acerbity. He is my custos. But that is not the kind of guardian you want, Damaris. You are too beautiful, you know. Let us sit here. It's lovely and warm, and the stars look just like diamonds, don't they? I would rather walk, said Damaris, who was longing to sit down. But she sat down when Ben Kelham took her by the elbow and led her to the seat, and she sat quite still when he suddenly took both her hands. Oh, don't, Ben, she said, when he pulled them up against his heart. I can't stand any more to-night. And he, being over-slow in the uptake, failed to catch her in this slip of the tongue. I want you for my wife, dear, was all he said. Then Damaris pulled her hands away, and removing the yashmuk, looked up into his face, whilst he drew a breath sharply at the beauty of her. I love you so, dear, I'm a clumsy fool at speaking, but I could show you how I love you. I want to marry you and take you right away home. Do you know, I don't know how to explain it, but I— "'Somehow feel you are in danger out here. "'I—will you—' Damaris looked to the right and looked to the left, hesitated, and chose the middle path. "'I can't answer you now, Ben. "'I'm—I'm I'm not sure about loving you, and of course one can't marry without that on both sides, can one?' "'Oh, the blessed little ignoramus! "'Besides,' she added as an afterthought, "'I'm so young, and so are you. "'Oh, Damaris!' "'Surely you don't want to wait until you find someone who's had lots of experience, which only means that he hasn't been playing the game as far as his future wife is concerned, and will come to you like a ready-made suit returned from the cleaners. The Kellums always marry young, and our brides are always very young. That's why, I think, we're so strong and long-lived.' He veered suddenly from the mazy subject of eugenics, and pleaded hard, persuasively, stubbornly. But Damaris, just as stubbornly, shook her head. "'Besides, Ben, this is unexpected. I haven't seen anything of you since I have been out. Surely, if you love me so, you would have come over more often to—to prepare the way.' She unashamedly exposed her hurt, whilst the man inwardly called himself every kind of fool for having listened to another's voice upon a subject as vital and tricky as love. Still he urged and pleaded, being of those who, refusing to take no as an answer, usually succeed in attaining their desire.' 
a wearisome process but well worth while once in a lifetime whatever kind of a clutter those first cousins obstinacy stubbornness and strong will cause you to accumulate about your feet at other times i don't know enough to marry persisted the girl i want to know what love really is first oh but dear i can teach you all you want to know replied the man in the customary all-sweeping manner of the male but i want to know all about the different kinds there are no different kinds damaris there is only one sort then explain this to me it seemed that two months before the girl had left england she had found the tweeny lizzie stitch by name sobbing over the cinders in her sitting-room grate the besmirched little face like a sodden little pudding had been covered with grimy hands and the thin little chest had heaved under the scanty cotton blouse and the stress of the tale of betrayal and desertion i don't know miss i didn't do it purpose like for a lark i did think it was love real love what what is always pardoned well miss if you think it wise to force him i'll do what you say though it's not about myself as i'm worrying it's cause i must have a father for the kid i couldn't put it out and lose it not ever so then had come about a strange scene of transformation confronted by damaris with a riding-whip in one hand a special license in the other and wellington at her heels the fox-faced young man had professed a desire to marry the tweeny on the spot. Then they had been granted a seventh-heaven glimpse of what love, real love, can be to the tweeny maid, changing her into a veritable spitfire, who had turned and rent the fox-faced youth. "'I wouldn't have you now, no-how, no, not if you were the last man on earth, not af I wouldn't. I'll get through my trouble, miss, all right, and by myself, thanking you kindly for troubling, and I'll wait until Mr. Wright comes along.' that's what i'll do mr runaway and when mr runaway had hinted that mr wright might kick at being called upon to shoulder under the encumbrances of others she had snatched the special license from her young mistress torn it into bits flung it into the foxy face and blazed into a big-hearted big-minded all-understanding little tweeny maid of a woman i said mr wright didn't i you bloomin chuckhead e'll understand that it was all done in mistake and not by preference so to speak and understandin he'll forgive Lots of them mistakes are made by girls like me, thumped of washed but still grimy hand above gallant little heart, through swipes like you. Life's full of em down our way. But life's love and love's life, and you can't get away from that, you can't. And I'd rather die with my love shut up ear, more thumps above gallant little heart, than throw it away on a louse like you. That I wouldn't, not af. Ben Kellum said nothing, and there fell a silence between the two, though the Egyptian night was as full of noises as it ever is in the big cities of the East. "'What did she mean, Ben?' said Damaris at last. "'By that love which understanding can forgive, even—even even her trouble.' And to Ben Kellum came the tweeny's seventh-heaven glimpse of the understanding of real love. He rose and swept Damaris, a thrill at the mastery, into his arms, where he held her as he might have held a child.' that dear and he spoke choosing the simplest words just because he knew no others that means if you said you loved me and i if i ever found you in a how shall i put it in no matter how compromising a situation that i should love you just the same because i should know that although to all appearances you you might have sinned yet the real you the pure honourable perfect woman in you could not show the smallest stain do you understand almost whispered the girl as she lay still in the arms that held her as a child you've got to understand listen it may sound brutal but you've got to understand my love for you supposing you disappeared as englishwomen do sometimes in the east 
Supposing I searched and found you, and you—you were—you were like the little tweeny girl. What should I do? Why, Damaris, unless you came to me and confessed to sin, I'd marry you, loving you, understanding you, without asking any questions. Without asking any explanation? Yes, dear, yes, because I love you. And you would forgive me? But, dear, there wouldn't be any need for forgiveness. The real, pure you would not have done anything wrong. Then he blundered. Like most big men, he was diffident. He underestimated the attraction of his strength allied to a very gentle courtesy. In fact, bound up in his love for Damaris, he had never given it a thought, excepting to curse the awkwardness of his body and the slowness of his speech. He knew nothing of the honesty which looked out of the eyes, the quiet strength of his movements and speech, the feeling of confidence he inspired. He was not given to self-analysis. He loved the sun in the heavens, the grass underfoot, and the traditions of his house too much to waste time on that kind of thing. So that, fearing to have hurt the girl or bored the girl, he plumped her on her feet, when he could have won her and saved her and others, including himself, a mint of pain if only had just crushed her up to his heart and kissed her. She stood quite still, with that dazed little feeling which falls upon one who has entered the wrong room. "'I am not going to bother you any more, dear,' he said, watching for the flash of relief which did not cross the beautiful face. "'What are you going to do?' There has come a report of lions somewhere near Karnak. I think I shall run down and have a look round. I thought of going on to Nairobi once I was really fit, so have got all my shooting-gear with me. But remember, you have only to send for me, and I will come. And don't try to run away, Damaris. And his voice was stern as he took her by the shoulders and drew her towards him. You are mine. I'm letting you go now because you want to learn about life, and that you can't do if you have a man always on your heels. You will learn all right, dear, and suffer a bit, dear, but you will come to me in the end. I can't offer you the witchery and colouring and poetry of the East, but I do offer you the biggest love there has ever been in a man's heart for a woman, and a troop of riotous guests came streaming down the path. One o'clock, they shouted, one o'clock, masks off, masks off. The two walked slowly towards them. "'You wouldn't like a lion's skin, would you?' he asked eagerly, and stared amazed at the reproachful, hurt eyes which looked back at him, just as the dancer swooped upon her. "'A lion's skin! When she was craving for the strength of his arms about her, and the tower of his love behind her, from the top of which she could safely make monkey faces of derision at life, standing with lesson-books in one hand and a cane in the other!' She turned her back on him and entered the ballroom, and he went back to the seat in the garden, unconscious of the woman who watched. And as the merry little crowd ran laughing into the hotel, the Duchess, with mind intent on a cigarette, slipped out of another door and hurried as fast as her outrageous heels would allow her to a seat under the date-palms. She took a three castles from the jewel Louis XV snuff-box, rasped a mash on the sole of one little crimson shoe, lit her cigarette, and studied the slipper. Then she turned her head and saw a man, an Arab, standing beside the seat. There had been no sound. Just out of the dark he had suddenly materialized in the startling, silent way of the East. Well, does it behoove us to remember that we have claimed the privilege of giving lessons in morality, culture, good breeding, manners, in fact, in one word, civilization, to the world at large? In the glaring sun of an eastern midday you can sit with your feet figuratively or literally on the table, if it pleases you, but it will be accounted as one more eccentricity unto you, 
but in the shadows, and you would retain the position of teacher to the world at large, keep the heels on the rail of your chair, for there are ears and eyes a many in the shadows and behind the silken curtain. But it took a good deal more than the sudden appearance of a native to make the old lady start. She put out her cigarette with the toe of a red shoe, took another from the snuff-box, rasped a match, not on the sole of her foot this time, lit the fragrant reed, and looked at the man who salaamed. "'Yes,' she said courteously. "'I am the fortune-teller, great lady. In the sand, by the stars, or by the lines of your jewelled hand, if in your graciousness you will permit me, I will tell your fortune. My son, behold, I am near the sunset. The moment approaches when my tired feet will advance still further upon the bridge which leadeth me to my God and your God. What is past I know, what is, is. What is to be is so near that, behold, sometimes in the stillness of the night I hear the angels whispering as they take counsel, as to the moment when, one shall tap me on the shoulder, saying, Come. He sank to the ground just at her feet, and looked up in the splendid old face with an agony of hurt, born of misunderstanding in his own, so that suddenly realizing that her refusal had been taken for antipathy, she stretched out her hand, which, having first pulled a corner of his white mantle between, he held upon the back of his own. "'Tell me, then, of those I love.' The fortune-teller looked at her straight in the face. "'Thy hands are full of love-flowers, white woman. Thy head is crowned with them. Thy feet pass upon them. Thou art all love. Yea, even though there are many upon the bridge who, having preceded thee, await thy coming, yet art thou surrounded with love.' and in the flowers in thy hands there is one, which thou cherishest, and for which thou fearest. Fear not, wise woman, let thy heart beat tranquilly at dawn, at noon, and at the setting of the sun, for it is written that no harm shall befall the flower, no stain shall mark the ivory petals of innocence, no rude hand pluck it before its time. Thou art not the only one to love the flower, wise woman. There is one who loveth it, and watcheth it, and will pluck it in due season, Yet there is another who loveth and watcheth, but from a great, great distance. If by the grace of Allah, who is God, the flower should be placed even for the passing of an hour within the hands of him who watcheth from afar, I tell thee, for so it is written, Fear not, for no harm shall befall the fragrant blossom. The old woman nodded her head so that the diamond leaves glistened, and smiled gently, and lifting her hand, pulled aside the corner of the mantle, and laid her hand on his. Nay, touch me not, for fear I shall pollute thee, thou woman of one great race, thou descendant of one unbroken line, thou noble with unblemished shield. Then she leant right forward, and laid both hands upon his shoulders. My son, my son, perchance could a very wise, very old woman help thee in thy stress, for behold, she understands all things, having herself passed through the troubled waters of life. The fortune-teller shook his head as he gripped the little hands upon his shoulders. For me there is no help, wise, all-loving woman. But she who loves me, she whom I love and for whom I would die, even breaks her heart through me, her firstborn, in my desert home. Her beautiful eyes are full of tears. She lifts not her head, and my father, whom I honour, is far from her in her stress. Perchance in the golden mint of thy heart thou hast a few coins of patience, wisdom, and love to spare." As the old woman got slowly to her feet, the man sprang up beside her. My son, though thou drainest a fortune from the mint of love at dawn, yet is it still there at eventide. 
she whispered as she raised her jewelled hand to his shoulders, and pulled him down towards her. My son, thou art my son, and I have faith in and a great love for thee and thine. And she kissed him upon the forehead, whilst the tears stood in her eyes, and turned towards the house, without noticing a man and a woman sitting in the shadows at the far side of the grounds. For the woman who watched was Zulana the harlot, who had gained an easy admission under the secrecy of her veils and the potency of Bakshish. And as Ben Kelham had sat down, she had crept quietly from behind the palms to stand, a shimmering bundle of silks and satins, in front of the man who looked up in annoyance, and then smiled. You couldn't really be rude to anything so tantalizingly beautiful, especially when the lady of your choice has just shown a certain lamentable want of appreciation in regard to your person and propositions. It is one o'clock, fair lady, you must unmask. And he uttered a cry of astonishment. Zulana had lifted her veil. And the moments sped as she wove the golden web of beauty and desire and love, into which, however, the clumsy fly refused to be enticed. But Ben Kelham, for all his slowness, was no fool, and understanding that the woman was offering him something outside her usual wares, and understanding also the danger of rousing the wrath of such a woman, he dealt with the matter as delicately as he could. "'Come but once to my entertainments,' she urged. "'My girls shall dance for thee, my animals fight for thee.' The man shuddered, sick to the soul, at the thought of the means by which this woman enslaved her suitors. "'Am I not beautiful?' she added. She made her last bid. She stepped back into the moonlight and unwound her veils from about her, standing, palpitating, trembling under the possession of her strange love. Beautiful! She was a dream, yet beside her beauty the pure loveliness of Damaris Heathencourt would have shone like the work of an old master beside a coarse copy. But what will you? Some like the snow-peaks, and some the stretching plain, others the turbulent ocean, and yet others the farmyard with its rural sights and sounds. Thank goodness for it! Just imagine the lamentation throughout the world if love, like the couturier, set fashions for the seasons. Love dictates that woman, this season, shall resemble the dazzling peaks of the Himalayas. And we, looking as the majority of us do look. Not that we should really be downhearted about it, not a bit. Only let the decree go forth, and every one of us, at the end of a week or so, would by hook or by crook have acquired a distinctly peak-like appearance. But Kellum looked up, looked long, and smiled. "'You are beautiful, very beautiful, the most beautiful woman I have seen, save one.' Zulana recognized her defeat, and in a whirl of rage and scented veils disappeared through the talik palms. And, arrived at her house, she stormed through court and rooms, and down to the bottom of the scented garden, leaving a trail of terror-stricken servants lying face downwards in her wake. She leant over the marble balustrade, and looked down into the huge pit with marble walls and sanded floor. All around it were cages in which were confined great beasts, and alcoves in which she and her guests, behind iron bars, would sit, when sated with love and feasting, to watch the animals fight to the death. Then she ran quickly down the flight of marble steps, and clapped her hands. From some dark corner a shape came running, ambling like some gigantic ape, maintaining an upright position by means of an occasional thrust at the ground with the knuckles of the left hand. The small eyes in its large head blinked craftily at the beautiful woman, its own mate being well-nigh as simian as itself. It shuffled on its huge feet and pulled at its gaudy raiment with abnormally long fingers. The monstrosity had been nicknamed Bess, after the monstrous dwarf god of ancient Egypt, 
by some one, the nationality of whom is of no account, who had balanced the ardour of his studies with hours of leisure in the bazaar. The beasts, aroused doubtless by the scent of the thing which brought them meat, roared and flung themselves against the bars of the cage. They were half-starved. Unlike most of her class, Zulana was mean. She was a niggard in things which did not concern herself. So that, to feed his numerous progeny of repulsive simian shape, the keeper of the cages starved the beasts. Not that Zulana cared one iota for their hunger or suffering. It made them fight the merrier for a bit of meat. And she sat in her ebony chair close to the bars, with a brazier beside her, and laughed delightedly as the liberated lion flung itself at the cages in which roared its wretched brethren. And then the great beast stopped suddenly in the middle of the den, growling softly, sniffling the air. Then, with a heart-rending roar, hurled itself straight at the bars behind which she sat. Was she afraid? Not one bit. She was behind the bars. She laughed aloud and clapped her hands, standing just out of reach of the paw which tried to reach her. Back across the sand rushed the animal, and then, with all its might, crashed against the barrier. A look of horror swept the woman's face. The middle bar had bent. She sensed her danger, but kept her nerve. Without hesitating, she turned to the brazier at her side, carefully selected a handle well wrapped about, and, turning again swiftly, thrust the red-hot point down the lion's maw. T'were best not to describe the rest of the awful scene in which a woman, safe behind bars, clapped her hands over the pain she had caused. But is it surprising that Zulana's enemies were legion? End of chapter 9 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org